0: This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hindu's Books Podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, your host for today. In this episode. We are joined by Manoj Kewalramani to talk about his new book, Smokeless War, China's Question for Geopolitical Dominance. The book provides a very timely, useful, detailed, and granular account, perhaps the first such account of China's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The book focuses mainly on Beijing's political and geopolitical strategies, as it looked to turn around a crisis and global criticism into an opportunity in defense of the China model. Did that strategy work? How has the pandemic changed both the image and stature of the Communist Party of China at home, right as it prepares to mark a huge 100-year anniversary on July 1st, as well as Beijing's status in the world? These are some of the questions that we will be discussing today. Thank you so much, Manoj, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Anand, it's a pleasure. Manoj, to begin with, uh, if you could just introduce a little bit about how uh, and when you started working on this book. It's extremely timely. I think it's the first such book that's been written right uh, in the middle of this pandemic and how China has been dealing with it. And beyond that, how did you get interested in China? You are a fellow of China Studies at the Takshisila Institution in Bangalore. You write frequently looking at China's politics and China's media. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about this book. Right, so my
0: journey sort of to study China was, uh, you know, it was marked by pure happenstance. Uh, I started off as a journalist in my career uh, based in Delhi, uh, and I spent a lot of time working with different media outlets in Delhi, working as a digital media journalist. Um, And by around 2011, I'd gotten to a point where I was feeling fatigued. I sort of felt burnt out with the media environment in India, uh, and I wanted a change, um, and I ended up sort of going uh, to China because my family has sort of been in an export, running an export business from China for the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, at different points of time with different intervals. So I took the opportunity to just travel to China and to sort of uh, be part of the family business for a couple of years, just do something different, make a little bit of money uh, rather than what I was getting paid as a journalist in India. And uh, I ended up with sort of spending two years uh, running a manufacturing business. Uh, I wasn't great at it. Uh, And finally found myself uh, going back to media, uh, working with CGTN, um, which is Chinese state media. And I took uh, three years over there, which was a fascinating insight into just uh, how the nature of discourse is shaped, what sort of political priorities exist, uh, and obviously the kind of changes that were taking place in China, because uh, Xi Jinping had just become General Secretary when I joined, he, he, he was about uh, six months into becoming General Secretary of the party, um, and he was visiting the United States the week that I joined for his Sunnyland Summit with Obama, um, and just the nature of how Chinese media was changing, I mean, I had, there was a quick space of catching up with uh, how it had been and what was happening, I mean, and, and that experience sort of uh, opened my eyes to what was happening in this country, and it was phenomenal. Um, and when I returned to India in 2016, uh, I was much richer for that experience, but I was also more struck by the fact that uh, in Indian public discourse, China's rise was not being seen as significantly a strategic challenge for India. You know, our focus was still Pakistan and the United States. Um, and of course, and you've written about this yourself, that you know how there's very little uh, coverage of China and India, which is authentic in some ways, which is looking at People who've been in China, who've studied the language, who understand how the party state functions, even if, they, even if it's extremely difficult to sort of unpack the nature of the black box that it is, but who've got some sort of sense of what that place is like. Uh, and that does, doesn't really exist in Indian public discourse. And for me, my research into China essentially began from that point of view, uh, to take all those experiences that I'd had, um, to sort of upskill myself academically, Uh, and to sort of broaden my understanding and then look at the sort of policy challenges that China poses, China's rise poses to India.
1: No, I suppose we should be thankful that you weren't great at manufacturing because you've done this great book, which you probably would not have uh, if you were opening factories all over the place in China. Uh, Before we come to your book, Manoj, which I really enjoyed, um, I just wanted to uh, press you on the point that you made on the media. I completely agree with you where it's quite strange where... China's rise, even though it impacted India in so many ways, geopolitically, economically especially, in many ways, uh, the media tended to focus more, for instance, on Pakistan, uh, and is underinvested in having people on the ground in China. Do you think that because of these two crises of the last two years, both the line of actual control crisis, which has been the worst uh, in some ways since the 1960s, plus COVID, do you think uh, China is getting covered more Uh, or are you pessimistic that uh, even if that is the case, uh, it will remain under-invested in, or do you expect, for instance, more journalists from India, more media organizations from India to take China more seriously and actually, for instance, have correspondents on the ground there? Do you think that would change at all?
0: Right. So my sense is that, look, I think China is getting covered more, and I think it's going to get covered a lot more because there's a greater consciousness uh, across the strategic sort of affair circles, media circles. Uh, and in sort of public consciousness that China is a serious serious factor for us to be covering, whether it's from the point of view of the security threats, from the uh, economic opportunity and threat perspective, and also from the point of view of what's happening with the pandemic. But I'm not necessarily sure how high and how good the quality of that coverage would be. Uh, And the reason that I say that is because uh, I don't see incentives in Indian media to send journalists to China to bolster their bureaus over there, to do all of that. I don't see that. Our approach to China is predominantly from, uh, the media's approach is predominantly from a very Indian prism, uh, and that's satisfied by sitting in television studios, uh, getting second-hand reports, and putting them out, because the approach is not necessarily to understand, the approach is to build narrative. Um, And there are very few people who are doing quality work. And you included I mean, There are very few people who are doing quality work, and I include you in that category, uh, along with sort of people, journalists from say HT, PTI, who are in China right now. Um, they're doing interesting, good work. But a lot of the other media, I don't see the incentive existing to invest uh, in setting up a bureau, partly because we are terribly insular as a media, and also partly because the interest is narrative, not necessarily understanding.
1: No, that's a good point. And uh, your book does speak a lot about the importance of, Of discourse power, as you call it, of narrative. Uh, And uh, in some ways, it's a pity one might say that uh, we don't have more people on the ground telling uh, readers in India what exactly is happening in China. I really enjoyed your book. It begins with looking uh, at this uh, huge problem that China faced uh, domestically and globally, as far as its reputation is concerned, with the outbreak uh, of the new coronavirus in Wuhan. Uh, It looks at how China looked to shape that narrative uh, both at home and abroad, uh, and gives us a very good look as well as how this fits in to China's new broader global strategy, which some call, of course, a wolf warrior approach. Uh, and I thought it was a fantastic insight into China at this current moment. Uh, to begin with, can you tell us a little bit about the title, uh, which is, of course, Smokeless War? It's quite interesting that uh, the, the Chinese government is in, is invoked war a lot in dealing with the pandemic right from the beginning, they were speaking about a people's war, for instance. Tell us about uh, why you call this a smokeless war.
0: So I chose the title smokeless war because I thought that it sort of, uh, uh, and I sort of expanded this from what the Chinese government referred to as their containment effort. They called their containment effort as a war without smoke. Uh, and Wang Yi eventually at, its, at a meeting called it a smokeless war. That's from where I eventually sort of picked up the title. And I thought it sort of suited aptly uh, the point that I wanted to make, which was that uh, firstly, at a containment level, this was a wartime effort uh, in the mind of the Chinese leadership. Uh, that was in the context of uh, mobilizing the kind of resources that you needed to mobilize, whether it was, uh, you know, public sector enterprises, whether it was private enterprises, whether it was individuals, whether it was party cadre at the grassroots level. Um, the ability to try and uh, the desire and the you know the need to manage public opinion. To take extraordinary policy measures uh, and those sorts of things required you to shape a narrative that this is sort of a war that's taking place and it's an extraordinary moment uh, at the same time this uh, this language of a people's war uh, also indicates that you know there's a protracted struggle, this is not something that's going to end within a week, two weeks, this is going to take a long time, and you're sort of also shaping expectations of people with that. Um, You're also sort of whipping elites in shape saying anybody who steps out of line at this moment would be, it would be unacceptable because this is again an extraordinary moment. And the war narrative sort of captures the essence of all of that quite clearly. Um, The other sort of aspect of the people, of the the war sort of narrative, and which I sort of thought smokeless war fit aptly, was that this was also about uh, shaping narrative, not just at home, but also outside. And that's also sort of a, you know, a war without actually being a, you know, proper conflict in war. Um, And this is an information battlefield, which Xi Jinping calls sort of information, uh, you know, he calls cyberspace and sort of the information space a battlefield. And the approach was therefore that, that you need to be, uh, you need to adopt a mix of different tactics for the broader strategy of shaping public opinion, uh, whether in China or abroad. And sometimes that was extremely aggressive, sometimes that was Uh, sort of talking about the sacrifice that China has made. Sometimes that was about spreading disinformation uh, and all of those sorts of things. Sometimes that was about capitalizing on uh, racism in the West and in other parts of the world to sort of tag along saying that this is, you know, sort of owning that, uh, uh, you know, the victim's tag uh, with regard to racism in the West and doing all of that. Um, And I thought that is where the idea of smokeless war sort of fit in quite well. And that's why I chose the title.
1: And you also write uh, in quite some detail about how they were able to turn around the narrative at home. Uh, It seems like a long time ago uh, when Wuhan was in lockdown, the rest of China was in a state of great anxiety, maybe panic. Uh, You had the death of the whistleblower doctor Li Wenliang that prompted, as you tell us, this outpouring of anger and rage on Chinese social media, which was unprecedented at the time. And people thought that this could perhaps be this huge moment in China, but then they were able to, the party was able to fight back as it was. uh, And by the summer of 2020, they were able to kind of emerge uh, out of this uh, virus and they avoided a second wave in some ways, uh, unlike many other countries because of the success of their lockdown. Uh, It seems that perhaps outside of China, it's a little hard to understand that they were actually able to turn around the narrative given China's reputation abroad at the moment. Tell us a little bit about how they were able to kind of pivot from this huge moment of crisis and come out of that.
0: Yeah I mean I think this was really fascinating for me also to study in terms of uh, how they did it and I I mean I was fortunate to be able to do this in real time in terms of when it was happening on a week-to-week basis. Um, The first thing I think for people to understand is that uh, party media, party state media uh, is not sort of regular media so when we use that word news media uh, the image that it conjures up in our head of you know uh, editors agonising over stories of, of public relevance, uh, you know editors agonising over objectivity, balance, and you know what's priority according to what should be most useful to my reader. Those sorts of things, the good things that make up of journalism, that make up journalism, aren't sort of part of party state media. Its uh, its sort of mandate is to hold the party's banner uh, and to push the narrative that the state, uh, that the party state. Apparatus wants you to push. Um, And I mean, in in the book, I talk about this, right? In the early days of the pandemic, even when Wuhan is locked down, uh, you don't see any sort of coverage in the People's Daily, which is the party's flagship newspaper, for a very long time. It doesn't, you know, and even Xi Jinping, when he says that this is an unprecedented crisis and we need to bring all our resources to bear, the People's Daily is sort of oblivious to it. And, you know, that's sending a message in terms of how. There was still an effort going on to figure out how do you approach this before you actually start to put out a narrative. Um, and by early February, you get a sense that uh, there is some clarity in terms of the central leadership of what they want to do. And therefore, by around uh, there's a meeting in the third of February, uh, and after that, you start to see a positive narrative being whipped up in the media. Um, this is, again, you know, there's a point where uh, the Central Propaganda Department says that, okay, we're going to be dispatching around 300 journalists to report on this outbreak um, and uh, and sort of a bunch of Chinese journalists head out into Wuhan and Hubei and they start talking about the kind of efforts that are going on uh, in, at the grassroots level to contain this pandemic. So you start to sort of see positive stories. Uh, and by the end of February, we saw a book that was put out by, you know, the press in China about uh, the kind of positive stories that existed. And uh, I read that book in uh, late February, uh, and it was published in English also, which was fascinating. And it was the attempt was to distribute it around the world because you wanted to shape that narrative. Um, and it's a really fascinating read. It tells you about how, you know, our understanding of propaganda is that it's dodgy, it's boring, it's repetitive. Uh, but this is really captivating. It's trying to sort of tell you stories which are sort of movie-like. Uh, and I, uh, some of the stories that I quote in the book, um, to me, uh, one of the stories of uh, one of the drivers, the truck driver, Sun Yang. Um, when I was reading that story, I remember in late February, the image that kept com- that kept coming back to my head was, this is a Salman Khan-like type, type character who's driving around, who's got this gutso. Uh, and, uh, and I think they've done really well at that. Uh, so the effort was, therefore, to spin a positive narrative to try and talk about, what's being done well, to try and bring numbers front and center, particularly when they are favoring the party. So as the numbers go down, you bring them front and center. Uh, you talk about the extraordinary nature of the efforts that are taken to contain this pandemic. And of course, the 24-7 demonstration, uh, live streaming of uh, the Shan and Shan hospitals which were being built. Um, all of that sort of is an effort to contain this narrative. And of course, it, it works when you're saying that this is extraordinary, this is wartime, this is unprecedented. Uh, and as sort of weeks and months go by, uh, it becomes much more clearer what the party wants to say. And in the white paper that they end up releasing, they if you read that story that the white paper is telling you, it's saying that this was unprecedented, unexpected, while we were sitting to celebrate Chinese New Year, suddenly this happens. But the fact is that actually you knew well before Chinese New Year, what was happening. Um, so I, I think some of that, uh, reshaping from a positive point of view uh, and the media's role in that, particularly party states' media's role in that, uh, is, is critical. And I, I don't think it's necessarily as well understood because it's not like people also, like often outside China, when you look at this, you think of the party state media and say, well, this is propaganda and therefore you disregard it. But domestically, uh, when you're telling people stories about themselves and when you're making them, those individuals are affected, part of your stories. Uh, which is the sort of uh, participatory persuasion framework which I cite in the book. Those eventually make you uh, a part of the entire narrative and you sort of, and the angst and the anger and the pushback starts to ease. And I think they've done really well uh, to contain the anger through these means. There's obviously also been, uh, you know, particularly around the death of Li Wenliang and after that, um, there was tremendous anger and how they sort of contained it along with the sort of, positive spin was also crackdowns. And that's the sort of good old-fashioned thing, which I think uh, the Chinese party state has gotten really, really good at. Uh, They've, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's comment of nailing Jello to the wall, they've mastered it, you know. So they've figured out how do you control, they've used the law effectively, uh, and they've targeted people who are citizen journalists, who are critics of the government, whether you were a nobody or if you were even somebody like Ranjur Xiang, or uh, Shia, uh, you've been targeted if you've been critical, um, and you know some of sometimes these laws are quite uh, you know they're sort of quite nebulous in terms of how they can be applied. And uh, people who've been picked up, uh, you know, it takes time before you actually figure out what's going to be done, and they can be detained for a very long period of time.
1: Right, and Manoj, of course, it also helped uh, that they were able to bring this virus under control by the summer of 2020. They didn't have a second wave, which obviously makes this propaganda about their system being superior, easier to sell, uh, to the degree that I always find it striking that it's been forgotten that they sacked the entire leadership of Wuhan and Hubei, which tells you that obviously Wuhan and Hubei didn't handle the pandemic well. But now that's become a footnote and you don't hear any more about the leadership being sacked. But the fact that uh, people have forgotten that, isn't it also because the propaganda needs a context to work? And even if uh, people, I think, outside China are a bit skeptical about it. The it seems the evidence seems quite compelling that they were able to avoid a resurgence, uh, barring minor clusters. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Uh, and so when I talk about the positive propaganda
0: and the crackdown, I mean I'm not necessarily terribly cynical because it, none of it would have worked without actual results. You know, uh, when people ask me about you know, well, uh, is the economy really doing well? And I mean the answer is very clear. I mean I was asked this question in September, October last year. And my answer was very clear that you can't fake children going to school. Right. Um, <laughs> they have, you know, they have contained things and you can't fake people going to cinema halls and all of that. So it, it, without the success, obviously, it would not have mattered. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a critical component of it. And I think the party has made it uh, a point to actually put out in public that they have taken action against. Uh, because it's not like there weren't other outbreaks. Uh, there was an outbreak in Beijing in the summer last year. There, was, there were outbreaks in the Northeast, uh, and most recently there've been out, outbreaks in South China uh, in, Guang, in Guangdong province. And they were, they've developed a playbook by which they control it uh, and by which they contain it, and they implement it rigorously. And if local officials don't follow and they don't implement it accordingly, they, are, they face consequences for failure, uh, whether it has been people who have been in charge of prisons where outbreaks have happened. Um, they faced consequences and the party has put that in the public domain uh, that this is how their approach is. So it's not just about uh, all narrative, of course, it's also about actually results and actually uh, handing out consequences to people for
1: failure. And all this, of course, Manoj, happens at a time when you tell us how China's external messaging has been changing. It's no longer defensive, but offensive as well. As you say, uh, this whole rise of Wolf Warrior diplomacy, etc. And you tell us how all of that actually played out uh, in this narrative battle over the pandemic as well. Uh, One thing that uh, strikes me is, of course, it's been interesting how the the Chinese government has been uh, going after the whole uh, lab leak uh, theories, plus anybody who's calling for an independent investigation, as we saw with China-Australia relations. But then on the other hand, their own propaganda Uh, has been quite open to spreading the same kind of theories. Uh, For instance, you've had even the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson saying that US military brought the virus to Wuhan. You've had lots of other things from the Chinese government about foreign vaccines not working, including American vaccines, which was purely untrue. So what's been your sense of how their whole approach has been on the offensive side? And is it really a a new China you're kind of seeing and how the external messaging goes when it comes to kind of uh, dishing it back? Yeah,
0: I think, I think this is really, it's, we're living in a really interesting moment. And I think we're going to see much more of this. So, I mean, as, a, as an observer, as an analyst, to me, it's really, really, uh, it's entertaining and it's engaging uh, what's going on. Uh, to me, look, uh, they, try, they picked up everything in the book from disinformation to positive information, to talking about sacrifice, talking about all of that. Um, This entire narrative of wolf warrior diplomacy, to me, it's sort of predominantly, there's an institutional aspect of it within uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, where, you know, uh, and there's also an uh, aspect of it from the point of view of, if you view yourself as a major power, and if you feel that you've accumulated a certain amount of power, you will contest it by exercising that power. Otherwise, what is the utility of that power? And I see some of this playing out in that context. At the other end, of course, there is a certain sense of anxiety because uh, Beijing does feel that it's sort of under the pump, particularly it was under the in the case with Donald Trump. Uh, but it also feels it's under the pump in that uh, with regard to how do you maintain domestic legitimacy, particularly when your economy is slowing and you are trying to carry out a very difficult pivot domestically uh, from high quality growth, sort of from high growth to high quality growth and livelihood issues. Uh, and you've got these. Of range of challenges. So, how do you sort of pivot legitimacy uh, and expand it from performance to even sort of say historical narrative, nationalism, uh, international pride, and all of those things? And I think all of those sort of contribute to the nature of the narrative that we are seeing, particularly with regard to this bullfighter diplomacy. Um, There's a sense of confidence along with a sense of anxiety that exists uh, and that plays out in this thing. There's also an argument to be made about uh, how the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is essentially. Uh, you know, taken charge of the narrative in China, which is not, which, you know, traditionally would not be the case. You know, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in China is not uh, at, at sort of at the highest levels in policy policymaking. Uh, the party propaganda department essentially controls the narrative. In terms of foreign policy policymaking, it's, it happens at a different level in the party. The ministry is seen as an executioner of those policies. Yet today we are seeing the ministry actually shaping the narrative. So there's also a certain institutional imbalance within the system that's playing out uh, over here. And if I was a diplomat in China and I was seeing uh, Chao Lijian uh, and, you know, Liu Shai, other sort of uh, Chinese uh, diplomats succeeding because they are aggressive, uh, I would see that as as a playbook for me to follow too, uh, because that's the recipe to move forward. So I think there's, some of that going on, and we will see a lot more contestation. Uh, I think China feels also at the highest levels that uh, the party leadership at the highest level feels that uh, there is space for contestation because uh, they have shown success, uh, and that success is evident to the rest of the world, uh, whereas the West has been stagnant, if not failing. Um, And there is space for uh, contestation to be able to reshape the external environment far more favorably, whether that's in terms of shaping future governance norms, whether that's in terms of reshaping existing norms around human rights, uh, or whether that's in terms of standards of technology, uh, that they need to do this much more vigorously. Um, And so therefore, I think we're gonna see much more of this.
1: On the human rights question, uh, Manoj, it's quite interesting. You also speak about this big uh, discourse battle that's playing out at the moment between US and China or the West and China, uh, especially on Xinjiang and Hong Kong. Uh, where uh, the Chinese government is, in a sense, under Xi, they've been less embarrassed, in a way, less defensive about the Beijing model. uh, And they seem to be on the front foot in creating this uh, idea that there's no such thing as universal values, uh, that some countries can't lecture others. Uh, And what's your sense of how successful they have been in pushing that narrative more globally, whether it's through the U.N., whether it's through their diplomacy with emerging countries of the global South, uh, do they have a more receptive audience than perhaps the West might imagine? When you look at how, for instance, maybe in India too, there seems to be a growing, uh, the threshold of of your acceptance of having external powers criticize you seems to be decreasing every year all over the world. Uh, So in that sense, do you think, how do you look at this battle playing out between those countries on the one hand that are speaking of rules based order, universal values in China and many others at the moment who are saying, hey, wait a minute, we we have our own values and you have to accept those values. Yeah, no, I think the Chinese have been,
0: uh, they've been successful and they've also failed. Uh, you know, sort of, again, like most things in China, there's a contradiction and dichotomy. So they've been successful and they've also failed. They've been successful in the sense that I think there is, uh, and this is evidence from, what's happening at the united nations just last week what we saw at the human rights uh, council in the u.n uh, you know china has been able to gather it's you know bring together larger numbers of countries along with itself uh, some of this has been through coercion uh, some of this has been through inducements um, the ukraine case last week was clearly a case of coercion uh, but otherwise say in, in with regard to countries in africa latin america or even west asia we see inducements play a key role now a lot of this engagement uh, on values uh, you know, or governance norms that the Chinese are doing, it's at an elite level. It's, it's not particularly interested uh, or hasn't really found the key. How do you sort of distill this down to people at a public level in other countries, right? So, And I think that's the challenge from them if they are going to make this argument uh, that, you know, uh, once elites change, uh, then what do you do? And how sustainable is this elite level engagement? Um, but they've been successful in that sense. Uh, I mean, if you, you just look at last year, during the pandemic, they had this extraordinary summit with African countries. And while talking about the pandemic during what they themselves said was an extraordinary summit, you inserted comments about how these states will respect China's policy on Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and the rest of it. Um, so there is a political quid pro quo to engagement that they want with these countries. And, and the numbers show at the UN that they have been successful. Where they have failed uh, essentially is essentially that uh, this push has also, or this, you know, whether you call it a push or whether you call it a defensive play, uh, depending on how you see it, has also led to a sort of uh, pushback in other parts of the West. So, um, in Europe and the United States, uh, I mean, t- until sort of sometime last year, Europe and even today, Europe was somewhat hesitant of partnering with the U.S. in the way Donald Trump was moving around. But uh, even for them, there's been some bit of a sort of realization that on a values front, these are really challenging times with regard to China. Last year, when Merkel and the European leadership, uh, EU leadership was meeting with Xi Jinping, he was quite blunt telling them, we don't need an instructor on human rights uh, coming from the outside. So uh, I think there's a realization. And uh, this is uh, the fact that today you're seeing coordinated sanctions in, by Western states against China tells us a little bit that this, uh, you know, this coordination is partly a failure of Chinese policy uh, and Chinese discourse. So that's why I say I think it's been successful in some ways, but it's also been failing in some ways. And that's why I think today we see more of Chinese policy talking about, you know, sort of harking back to third worldism uh, and, you know, as a leading developing country, we'll lead other developing countries and so on and so forth. Um, so I think it's going to be challenging time for them in this.
1: A final question, Manoj. Uh, There's so much more to talk about, uh, but we'll wrap up with your thoughts on, um, as you know, July 1st, 2021 is this big political anniversary uh, in China where the CPC is marking its 100 years. Uh, As we approach this anniversary, what's your sense of uh, the last two years and this whole pandemic, the crisis they faced and the way they tried to shape it? what What do you take away from that in terms of how external observers might understand how resilient uh, or not the party is as it turns 100. As you know, I think people have always thought it would take a, a, a black swan kind of event to destabilize the party or maybe years of uh, no economic growth. This was one such uh, black swan event. Uh, so in terms of how they address that, what would be your takeaways uh, in terms of what it tells you about their institutional capacities to deal with such moments?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's uh, what they've displayed is tremendous institutional capacity to deal with such a crisis. Uh, they've displayed tremendous ability to mobilize resources, uh, tremendous ability to manage propaganda, uh, tremendous ability to, uh, to uh, perform and to communicate performance legitimacy. Uh, They've shown awareness to sort of, you know, uh, what's the relevance of uh, international acclaim uh, and nationalism in all of this. And I think uh, they've sort of done that, uh, you know, that they've actually created the sense of the party being a, a party being, as they call it, the vanguard of the Chinese nation. They've actually shown that. And I think in that sense, they've done tremendously well. But at the same time, I think what's happened is that there are long-term challenges which have gotten uh, exacerbated. And I think that's what we need to watch out for. uh, Because from the outside, at this moment, the party seems in a really, really good position and stronger than it has probably ever been. Um, To me, the challenges that exist uh, on a long-term basis, which uh, is partly a product of the last two years, but even longer than that and Xi Jinping's entire reign. Firstly, of course, the fact that you've seen a greater emphasis on ideology, on redness. Um, you know, People's Daily for the last six, eight months has been running, uh, has been running this campaign. Uh, and part of it was about Xi Jinping's red footprints. And just earlier this last week, Xi Jinping spoke about, uh, you know, this revolutionary heritage being a spiritual wealth for the party to grow. Now, all of that sort of emphasizes that, you know, your political priorities are shifting from a focus on expertise in the cadre that you cultivate To ideological uh, conformity, political loyalty, and those sorts of things, which again, reduces the party's ability to respond to challenges from an expertise point of view going forward. Um, The other aspect is, again, related to Xi Jinping's centralization of power. Today, you see Chinese provincial party bosses also writing in Chinese media talking about how the biggest historical learning of our experience, one of them, has been about the need to maintain this Centralized, unified leadership uh, with some with a strong core, uh, and at the same time, Xi Jinping is talking about how the entire system needs to work from the point of view of top-level design in development uh, and uh, implementation of government policies. That tells us that the space for local experimentation is shrinking. And anybody who studied Chinese China's development will tell you that local experimentation, autonomy, you know, uh, has been critical. Uh, it's not just uh, you know, crossing the river by feeling the stones at the top. It's been at multiple different levels. You know, there are many different China models which led to this miraculous growth, and one needs to see whether that sustains under this sort of new normal. The last thing is, I mean, and I think this again got exacerbated during the uh, pandemic, is that elite, elite friction, and not just elites within the party, but also your private sector elites, the new sort of red entrepreneurs. Um, Xi Jinping is essentially saying that in this era of becoming strong, becoming rich is not necessarily a priority. So if you are a, if you're an Alibaba, if you're a Tencent, if you're a multimillionaire, you know, uh, you know, it's no longer my priority to see you grow rich and prosperous and therefore lead to prosperity around. My priority is for you to serve strategic objectives. Uh, and that sort of leads to friction. Um, And so I think those are sort of things, how sustainable that will be, what sort of ripple effects does that have uh, on the economy on the banking system uh, and on the private sector's sort of, you know, vitality. All of that will be then critical down the road for the Chinese economy. Uh, And if that sort of starts to crumble, you'll see more chaos. So I think there's lots of pluses, uh, but there are these sort of deep, long term problems that I think persist. uh, And we have to keep keep an eye on those.
1: On that note, Manoj Kivalramani, author of Smokeless War, China's Quest for Geopolitical Dominance. Thank you so very much for joining the Hindu Books Podcast. Thank you so much, Anand. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4, S-O-C-M-E-D4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.